I would invite you to turn with me in your Bibles this evening to Matthew chapter 7. We'll be looking at verses 15 through 23 together tonight. Before looking at God's Word, let's pray and ask His blessing on our time together this evening. Father, again, we thank You for the privilege uh, to gather and to study Your Word on an evening like this in which it's, uh, it's tempting for us to think of the many things to come uh, in the week ahead. We pray that You would help us to know that the things that we look at as we consider the truth of Your Word are eternal and transcendent and holy things. And so would you help us to approach your word of truth with hearts of humility and that you would press uh, such truth upon uh, our minds and hearts uh, that we, as a result, might grow uh, in holiness of life as your people called out by your grace. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Uh, One of the things uh, I'm convinced that we must constantly address in the Christian life is our understanding of the place of God's law in the life of the believer. Now, certainly there is opportunity for us to grow in our understanding of the content of the law, of what it is God's Word is teaching us in terms of what obedience looks like. But primarily what I mean is the relationship in the believer's life between the law and obedience. We could call it the importance of gospel imperatives. Our tendency, I think, when it comes to the law or it comes to law in general is to see it as something restrictive, something controlling, something that is limiting of our freedom. And of course, from a fallen, sinful perspective, this is naturally how we are going to think of law, isn't it? Keeping us from doing that which we want to do. We live in a culture that tells us, if you want to do something, you ought to have the freedom to do it. And if anyone gets in your way, or anything gets in your way, you have the right. In fact, no, you have the privilege, the responsibility even, to discard those things. If that happens to be a person, well, that person should be discarded. If it's uh, an institution, well, it's just an oppressive authority over you, and it's cult-like in its nature. And so you ought to cast it away and be free from it. So the world around us simply has no category for the one who genuinely, who truly wants to live under the authority of God's Word. The world around us just cannot envision someone who has great affection and delight for something like the law of God and who wants to live according to it. That's absolutely revolutionary. That's counterintuitive to say something like, I love the law of the Lord. But in John 14, Jesus teaches us something very remarkable, something quite contrary to how we tend to think of law on our own. He says there in verse 15, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And in verse 21 of that same chapter, he says, Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he is the one who loves me. And so here Jesus equates command keeping with love. Love for God is made evident in obedience to the law. As we grow in Christian living in terms of our obedience to the law, we are showing that our desire, our heartfelt desire, is to grow in love and devotion and affection to the one who is the giver of that law. We read the same thing in 1 John 5, verse 3. This is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. And so love and obedience simply cannot be separated from one another. Joel Beakey, who's written extensively on the Puritans, 
says, As a loving subject obeys his king, a loving son obeys his father, and a loving wife submits to her husband, so a loving believer yearns to obey the law of God. And so while the law, of course, shows us our need for Christ, shows us how far short we fall of God's perfect standard of righteousness, for the one who is in Christ Jesus, the law now shows us how we are to live. You know, we've been spending time these last number of weeks on Ephesians chapters 4 and 5. It's in those chapters that we learn that if we are in Christ, that union with Christ will be reflected in very practical daily ways. We reflected in the fruit that is born from our lives that we are his people, that we belong to him. It'll be evident in the way in which we speak with those around us, the way in which we treat other people, not just those closest to us, but, but our acquaintances and those we just interact with in the world and the community around us. It will be evident in our desires to pursue holiness of life and purity, purity both in the inner man and in outward behavior. There's consistency between those things. And so the law, you see, is to be our delight, to be that which we love and long for more and more in our lives. The more we know it, the more we long for it the more we ought to want to submit to it, the more it will again be reflected in our life as true and lasting fruit is produced. Now, During our Wednesday night large groups this semester with our youth, we've been studying New Testament texts as they relate to the Ten Commandments. Because the law, of course, is not something that is laid aside in the New Testament. In many ways, what Jesus does is he he takes the law, takes the Torah of old, And he presses it upon his hearers. He presses it deep upon our hearts that we would see more clearly our need for his redeeming grace. That we might see more clearly the high calling of the law upon his redeemed people. Now one of the places where he does this most evidently is in Matthew chapter 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount. It's in this sermon that Jesus takes such things as the sixth commandment, thou shalt not murder And again, presses it upon us, helping us to see that if we have anger within our heart toward another, we are guilty of murder. He takes the seventh commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery, and shows that having a lustful intent within the heart is a violation of the seventh commandment. And here in Matthew chapter 7, the text that we'll be giving our attention to tonight, I think Jesus really unpacks the third commandment, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. And he helps us understand what it means to take his name, to revere it, and to refer to him as Lord. So let's look beginning again at verse 15 through the second paragraph there, verse 23. Jesus says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits, are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles. So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? 
And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Now here, Jesus tells us that there is a vital connection between the heart and the behavior. That what is going on inside of us will be made evident in our life. And one day, everyone who has ever lived will stand before the Lord and will be exposed for who we really and truly are. And so while Jesus is addressing false prophets who might come amidst his people in verses 15 through 20, he goes on in verse 21 to give words of warning to us all, that we might all consider what it means to take the name of the Lord upon our lips when we profess with our mouths that we are his and that he is ours. So what problem is Jesus addressing here in verse 21? Well, in a word, we could say it's hypocrisy, the problem of hypocrisy. He's addressing people who call him Lord, but don't truly know him. People who call him Lord, but don't really have a love for him. Remember, love and obedience are vitally connected to one another. And simply, this hypocritical person is failing to obey, failing to do the will of the Father in heaven. And because true, heartfelt obedience is lacking, there is no true love for him. And it's simply a profession with no substance behind it. John Stott, in commenting on this verse, says, What better Christian profession could be given? Here are people who call Jesus Lord with courtesy, orthodoxy, and enthusiasm in private devotion and public ministry. In itself, nothing is wrong with this. Yet everything is wrong because it doesn't line up with reality. It's a verbal but not a moral or heartfelt confession. It was from their lips but not from their life. And so let's look at the various ways that someone might be guilty of this type of hypocrisy that Jesus speaks of in this passage. And as we consider the ways in which another might be guilty of hypocrisy, the point of the text is for us to give consideration to our own lives. To consider where perhaps we have inconsistencies in our own life so that we might be growing in maturity of life, seeking to bear the fruit that Jesus speaks of in this passage, fruit that is reflective of what it really means to be uh, given in allegiance to the Lord. Now notice first the danger of a simple outward profession. Again, we could call this a confession of faith without substantive belief behind it. They address him as Lord, but clearly do not live under his lordship. What does it mean to call someone Lord? Well, it simply means that I am living under the authority of that one to whom I give that title to. I call you Lord because I recognize authority, and I'm saying that I want to submit to it. Now, for those living under Roman occupation... You know that they were commanded, they were, was dictated that they were to call Caesar Lord. They were to acknowledge his total authority over all of life. The Christian recognized very early that, of course, this was a conflict of allegiances, that he was called to live under the lordship of Christ at every point in his life, that he was to live under the authority of Jesus. So what Jesus is teaching us here is that it is possible to have an orthodox confession. It's possible to call Jesus Lord and yet fail to live under his authority. 
They profess with their mouths that they are his, and yet their hearts are far from him. Now, this is nothing new, of course. This is a problem for the children of Israel all the way back to the very beginning. We can think of such places, for example, as Isaiah chapter 29, verse 13. We read this. The Lord said, because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me, and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men, therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people, with wonder upon wonder, and the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. And so because, see here, the people of Israel are simply giving lip service to the Lord, but have hearts that are hardened against him, there will be a barrier prohibiting them from possessing true wisdom. Or over in Hosea chapter 6, in verse 6, For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offering. The Lord's desire is for people who love him, who truly long for a knowledge of him. He desires that over people who are simply going through the ritualistic behavior, doing the right things externally, but having hearts, again, that are far from him. Or think of the book of Jonah. You know the story well. Jonah is told by God to go to the land of Nineveh and tell them to repent of their wickedness. But what does he do? He goes the exact opposite direction of where God tells him to go and what to do. It would be like God telling you go to New York City and you go to Miami to get on a boat to go to South America. Jonah tries to flee from God and to get away from his presence and get away as far as he can. So there's really nothing in Jonah's life that shows that he cares about the Lord at all. And so Jonah is on the ship, and then the Lord brings this storm down upon Jonah and the sailors. And the sailors are filled with fear that they are about to be swamped with this storm and die. And so they cast lots to find out who the source of all this trouble is. And the lot falls upon Jonah. And the sailors come to him, and they ask him in verse 8 of chapter 1 who he is and where he comes from. And listen to how Jonah replies in verse 9. I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. It's a great statement, isn't it? Unbelievably orthodox. A great confession of faith. But his life does not reflect this confession of who God is, does it? He says that God is the God of the dry land and the sea, the very sea that I am seeking to run away from him across. And so he takes the name of the Lord upon his lips And yet his heart is in utter rebellion against the Lord. And I think we could go back one step further and ask, what kind of person would call Jesus Lord in the first place? Well, obviously someone who has some knowledge of Jesus' identity. We're not just talking about anyone here, but we're talking about someone who at least knows the right things to say. The only one who could call Jesus Lord is one who has, at the very least, a peripheral knowledge of his lordship. They at least have some understanding of Jesus' identity. Perhaps they have a knowledge of Jesus to some degree because of time that they have spent around others in the covenant community. Perhaps they have some knowledge of who Jesus is because they've read the Bible. 
or they have given consideration to spiritual things. And what we learn is that true union with Christ leads to much more than a confession of his lordship, but it is not less than this. In Philippians 2, Paul says that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Romans 10, Paul says in verse 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So to truly call Jesus Lord means an acknowledgement of his legitimate power, a bowing before his rightful sovereignty. It's not simply a title, but it is a religious claim that he is owner, that he is master, that he is in a position equal to to that of God the Father. It was back in Exodus chapter 3 that the Lord revealed his name, his identity to Moses. It's there that God calls to Moses from not the bush that's burning, but the unburning bush, because the fire was separate and distinct from the bush, right? God is not dependent upon his creation. And he speaks to Moses there and he tells him that he will deliver his people from the hand of Pharaoh. And Moses is that God-appointed leader who will lead the people out of that slavery. And Moses says to God, well, what if the people ask me, who is this one who has sent you to us? What is his name, the name of the one with whom you speak with this authority? What shall I say to them? And God replies in verse 14, I am who I am. Or I will be who I will be. Say this to the people of Israel. The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Now a couple of things here to notice. Notice that this process of naming another is an act of authority. See, the first thing that a parent does to establish his authority over that newborn child is to place a name upon that infant. Now, the child may not like his name. It could be, of course, that the child grows up to really loathe his name. And as an act of rebellion, when he becomes an adult, he could even change his name. Because we all understand that naming is a privilege of authority over another. But in Exodus chapter 3, it is God who reveals his name. It's a name that he ascribes to himself Because no one has named him. No one has authority over him. And in this name, I am who I am, or I will be who I will be, God speaks of his self-existence, his self-sufficiency, his supreme authority, and his absolute power. All of those things are revealed in his name. The God who reveals himself to Moses is the God who saves And so to truly call him Lord is to recognize that this is a divine title, a covenantal name, to know him as the sovereign and holy one. To call him Lord is to acknowledge a longing to live under his authority, for he has worked redemption and he has purchased my very soul and body. Now, how might someone seek to misuse the name of the Lord? Well, they might take his name and use it in a self-serving way, even a a, a manipulative manner, perhaps. Uh, Turn, uh, if you will, with me to Genesis chapter 32. 
It could be that someone would take the name of the Lord as an attempt to get God perhaps to do his own bidding. Uh, They might use the name of the Lord to promote their own agenda, to fulfill their own ends. Now in the ancient Near East, the thinking was, if you knew the name of someone, you would have authority over that person. You could control or manipulate them. If you knew the name of the gods who lived in that particular region, perhaps you could take that god, uh, harness his power for your own ends, a way to gain mastery over another. In Genesis 32, verse 24, we read, And Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, Let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, What is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, Please tell me your name. But he said, Why is it that you ask me my name? And there he blessed him. Now God knows who Jacob is, of course. In this pre-incarnate manifestation of the second person of the, of the Trinity, he knows who this is. He doesn't ask his name because he forgot it or he's tired from wrestling all night. He asks for his name in order to show that he has mastery over Jacob. And then God renames Jacob because he has the authority to do that. But it's not simply a name change to indicate that he has authority over this one. But it's a name change that is going to reflect the great blessings of God's covenant of grace in Jacob's life. That God is going to, in fact, strive to fulfill his covenant promises in the life of this one who was once lost but is now found. And then Jacob asks God his name. And even though it seems to be with this respectful tone, please tell me your name, God does not reply. Because Jacob does not have mastery or authority over him. So it could be that a misuse of the divine name is uttered because of a desire to sort of cajole God into doing what we want him to do. Someone might use the name Lord, again, in order to serve his own ends. Turn to the book of Acts, chapter 19. Here in this passage, Paul is doing extraordinary miracles in the power of God so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that are brought into his presence that he touches are taken to the sick and they are healed. We read in verse 13 of Acts 19. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded." And so here are these seven sons of Sceva misusing the name of the Lord Jesus, employing it to perform magic tricks for their own personal advantage because they want some sort of glory for themselves. 
God then allows them to get the beating that they deserve from this demon-possessed man. And so you have men misusing the name of the Lord Jesus, and they are rightly, appropriately humiliated. But then look at verse 17. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. So by allowing them, by allowing these men who seek to misuse the name of Jesus, by allowing them to be filled with shame, Jesus preserves the honor of his name. He refuses to allow anyone to manipulate him, for he has supreme and sovereign authority. And then in verses 18 through 20, we read this. Also, many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices, And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it to be 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. And now here is this amazing result. The sons of Sceva tried to misuse the name of the Lord Jesus. They are humiliated. And in their humiliation, the name of Christ is actually honored. And as a result, there are many that come to faith and repentance. Now back in Matthew chapter 7, notice that Jesus says this person who calls on the name of the Lord, calls on his name in vain. Not just calling him, you see, by Lord, but calling emphatically, Lord, Lord. And what he's getting at through this double use of the name Lord is again, it's, it's an emphatic, emotive response. Now, in English, we have various ways of drawing emphasis to something. We can use an exclamation mark. We can use a different font. We can use italics and bold and such things. Obviously, none of those things existed um, in ancient Semitic languages. And so in order to emphasize something, the word would be recorded twice, or perhaps three times, as we find in Isaiah chapter 6. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And so this doubling of language here, Lord, Lord, is an emotional plea. The person who calls Jesus Lord, Lord, is calling upon him with intensity, with enthusiasm. They are excited about Jesus, but what is Jesus saying about them? That he does not know them. Someone can call on his name. They can even passionately call upon him and yet have a heart that is far from him. This is because there is, again, no spiritual reality. It's only an emotionally driven relationship, a relationship of perhaps using him in some way in order to benefit the self. This is the kind of person who might call upon the name of the Lord and claim the Lord as his own only when it's convenient but doesn't really want the Lord to rule over every part of his entire life. Perhaps someone who goes through a significant trial. In the midst of that trial, they see their weakness and frailty. They see their finitude and they cry out to the Lord for help. But then when that trial passes, when the illness is gone, when they recover from that particular trial and struggle in life, well, they have no use for God anymore, no use for him. And so it's not truly heartfelt or lasting. And so Jesus is saying here that someone can have a knowledge of who he is. They call him Lord. 
They could even have an emotional attachment to Christ, calling him Lord, Lord. They can also have a very active life doing all sorts of Christian activities. Look at verse 22. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and do many mighty works in your name? So they might prophesy in his name, which means to proclaim truth in his name. They might cast out demons or do mighty works. In other words, they might minister to others in the name of Jesus. Yet in spite of these efforts, they don't know him. So you can be a very busy person, serving other people, sacrificing time and money, being committed to all sorts of activities. You can be the nicest person in the world, but perhaps not have that spiritual reality to back it up. Now for us, this might be a carelessness in the way that we approach worship. Perhaps our thoughts wander when another leads in prayer. Perhaps when scripture is read, our eyes follow the words, but it's just an external thing. We're following along. Perhaps when the hymnal is open, we look along, but our hearts are not attentive to the things that we are singing. And so when our worship is casual or insincere, we dishonor God's name. It's activity with no real substance behind it. So I think the warning of this text is for us to give consideration to the inconsistencies in our lives, between the way that we perhaps profess to be a Christian and yet fail to be true followers of the Lord Jesus. Perhaps there are areas of our lives that sort of remain untouched to his lordship. Perhaps things that we want to hold on to for ourselves, for our own private indulgences. Perhaps things that we convince ourselves are really not that big of a deal. They belong to us. I've given Jesus so much more. Why can't this portion of my life be my own? And so if Jesus exposes here the one who falsely calls upon his name, who takes the name of Christ Jesus as Lord and misuses it, well, what does it mean then to honor the name of Christ? What does it mean to truly call upon him as Lord? Well, he tells us in verse 21, it is the one who does the will of my heavenly Father. Remember, the one who truly does his will, who truly obeys, is the one who also loves him. And the one who has true love for the Father, that love will be shown in his obedience, doing his will, conforming his life to that will which has been revealed in the pages of Scripture, namely the law of the Lord. And so as we think of the gospel imperatives and how they are to be more and more evident in our lives, we are growing to understand more and more what it means to live under his lordship what it means to honor the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, says cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. And so to take the name of Christ upon ourselves, you see, is to be a longing to take his identity 
with us wherever we go, for that is who we are as those in union with Christ. Just as we take our family name with us and we ought to give consideration to how our living reflects the family that we are connected to, how much more should we be giving careful consideration to the way that our own lives reflect his ownership of us? And so may we as God's people ever long to love the Lord Jesus in seeking to do the will of his Father. Would you pray with me? Our Lord, we thank you for your divine truth. We thank you for a grace which is made so evident in our lives day after day. May we as your people marvel at such grace, delight in such grace, and see more and more the high calling that it is as your people to live under the lordship of Christ Jesus. Uh, May we um, recognize areas of life in which perhaps there is great inconsistency Areas in which you and your loving kindness have been exposing to us in our own study and, uh, and listening and hearing to your word of truth. Would you show us those things and may we grow in our hatred toward that sin within, seeking to mortify that flesh that dwells within our hearts and growing in uh, likeness to the Lord Jesus. In his name and for his sake we pray. Amen.